0: Brad. As Napoleon Bonaparte famously said, the winners write the history books. In season one of Rain on Me, we will delve into the Imperial Bees and examine the families of the Biernays, the Bonapartes, and the Bernadottes, and how they intertwined to change monarchies around the world forever. How did a French soldier and a merchant's daughter become the king and queen of Sweden, whose house reigns to this very day? What does the Queen of Holland's notoriously messy life have to do with the Second Empire of France? How did monarchies around the world come to have Creole roots? These questions and other intrigues will be answered as we look at these families and their strategies, drama, and follies, and how they not only changed monarchy, but politics around the world forever. Join me, your host, Jennifer Gulbranson, for Season 1 of Rain On Me, Imperial Bees. Episode 3, The Bonaparte Hillbillies. Hello and welcome to Rain On Me, Season 1, Imperial Bees. I'm your host, Jennifer Gulbranson. And here we are at Episode 3, and I think it is going to be one of my favorite favorite episodes because I love messy drama and nobody brings messy drama quite like the Bonaparte hillbillies. I mean, they have it all. (laughs) And the great thing about the Bonapartes is that they're so not self-aware. They look down on everyone, but it's just like, uh, you might want to make sure your house is clean (laughs) before you check on somebody else's side of the street. They're just so... Deliciously trashy, and I love talking about them because I, first of all, um, I can relate, and second of all, <laughs> they're just, they just—they are really a riot. Um, and I know that's probably not funny to the people who had to live underneath them, <laughs> but <laughs> they've been dead for two hundred years, so let's have a little fun with this drama. So if we thought the Tashers and the Bernays were drama, I mean, let's get ready to rumble. Our third family of the Imperial Bees, um, the Buonapartes. Now that is their given name. That is who they are. Napoleon, um, and we're going to get into this, Napoleon Francified everything. He changed all of their names to sound more French. Um, And that's really rooted in racism as well as classism. And this is where I think, Napoleon, who is a master at marketing and PR, and because that's my day job, I kind of want to (laughs) deconstruct that a little bit before we get started. Because there's this, and, and the English propaganda, I'm assuming most of you that are listening to this podcast are listening to it from North America. And that is how good the English propaganda was in the early 19th century, is that everything we believe about Napoleon Bonaparte was manufactured by the Duke of Wellington. And we literally believe all of that English propaganda as it is written. And Napoleon said himself, "Uh, if you win, you get to write the history books. And Wellington won, and he wrote the history books. And so we believe that Napoleon is this tiny little despot, and he's this megalomaniac. And yeah, he had some of those qualities. He certainly wasn't tiny. He was of average height. But of course, you know, the way to diminish a man's power is to call him short. Um, he was a short king. He was 5'6", five, 5'7". Five, um, I'm taller than Napoleon, <laughs> but I'm also a tall Norwegian girl. Uh, I digress. Anyway, um, we in North America believe it, hook, line, and sinker, and it's not even our history. And It's, it's fascinating. Um, once I started to delve into the, you know, First Empire, Second Empire, Bourbon Restoration, once I started, for my own book, I started doing research, I was like, oh, wait, the Bonapartes are fascinating, and Napoleon kind of missed the mark branding himself. And the English ran with that, I think, in a, in their classic imperialistic racist way. So Corsica is an interesting country. That is where the Bonapartes are from. Uh, it's Sicilian, Italian, French... And it volleyed between the rule of those three countries over the centuries. There is this famous phrase that, again, England co-opted with the Argentinian situation, um, that Corsicans are Sicilians who speak Italian and think they're French. And that sounds funny on the surface, but you have to really delve into why that is so classist and racist to begin with. Now, Europe really didn't deal with the Mediterranean. uh, Because... Again, classism and racism. And North Africa had pretty much a big stronghold on the Mediterranean for trade and rule and everything. So you don't see a lot of uh, Western European monarchies going south of Rome. Um, And it was believed that people who were south of Rome were of a different race entirely. We will just leave it at that. You see that play in the early 20th century and late 19th century with how Italians are viewed, especially Sicilians, are viewed in America. So this starts 200 years before that and there is a classism to these Corsicans. Now it's not as bad as seeing a Sicilian or a Greek but um, even in modern times if you think of Prince Philip of England he was you know known as the Hun or the Greek. So there is a lot of racism and classism attached to Mediterranean people. And while the Bonapartes were lesser nobility, I think in English terms we could say that they were on par with maybe being a baron. Um, There was this uh, racism and classism Napoleon experienced in the military academy that kind of gave him this street rat made good, Uh, edit to his story and he I see why he used that um, because you have to understand he just became the absolute ruler of a people that had come out of a revolution against absolute rule and he had to be kind of an everyman so he gave himself this I'm a street rat it's very and you see other dictators kind of co opt this throughout history you see um, Juan Perón and Evita Perón really take this was once as you are now and he started this whole thing right he you know i'm just a corsican guy who you know won a bunch of battles for france and i'm on your side whereas he was not (laughs) um he was not this lesser person he was actually nobility who you know used his position and um happened to just be very lucky. I don't even think he was all that that smart because he paints himself into a corner when he takes this I'm just a Corsican street rat edit uh, because it makes the other monarchies of Europe look down on him. Kind of perpetuates that. Whereas if he had kind of reestablished his noble ties in Corsica and said hey I'm the son of a baron who was at the court of Louis the 16th i think the edit with other monarchies would have been a little different they would have been softer to him and seen him more as a peer rather than um, a a usurper and there would have been more peace in the land Uh, people don't realize that napoleon wasn't just out trying to conquer all of europe people were declaring war on him because they found him to be an illegitimate monarch and all of the issues he had with he deposed the pope (laughs) he was a rabble rouser and Austria and England they're all declaring war on him and he's just winning these wars. So I think it's important to establish that before we get started on telling the story of the Bonapartes because it's a wild ride. So at the head of the Bonaparte family we have Father Carlo. Now Carlo who uh, was a lawyer by trade went by Charles in France. You see that there's a lot of Um, code switching, for lack of a better term, between their Corsican roots and being accepted in France. So, you see Dad kind of established that. So he goes between Carlo and Charles and he marries the canonically beautiful Letizia Romolino. Letizia Romolino, there's not much written about Ma and Pa Bonaparte, but of all of the things written, Letizia's beauty is legendary. she is also from minor nobility Um, her father was also a baron so it was you know kind of an arranged noble marriage as they are Um, as I said he was a lawyer he was received at court often um, with Louis the 16th so he has an in with royalty Um, not too much like I said is about known as about uh, hello I can talk not too much is known about their early lives um except that Letizia was beautiful (laughs) and we don't know if this is because of the bourbon restoration trying to erase anything that paints the Bonaparte family in a positive light we also don't know if it's due to aggressive English propaganda that you know was meant to follow a lot of the family that emigrated to America after uh the second exile so it's it's, it's complicated. We also know that Corsica had a tumultuous time in those days with the handoff of ruling parties, and we don't know how records were kept or, or whatever. But we do know that uh, Carlo and Letizia married and had eight children, five boys and three girls. God bless them. And, <laughs> um, in Corsica, Letizia was known as the Little Marvel, uh, and she really was known for her beauty far and wide. Um she uh I I it's incredible to me that this like nondescript woman, even after all of the whitewashing and editing of history from propaganda, that this lives on. Like there's a she's known as the Little Marvel, and then when Napoleon is crowned emperor, he gives her the official title of Madame Mare, you know, the mother of the nation. So um, it's, it's the, there's a lot of reference for Letizia from everyone, and it's kind of fascinating to me that the, <laughs> the kids are effectively trashed, but everybody across the board keeps Letizia's honor there. Now, she was married very young at 14 years old, and she was known for bringing her children up incredibly strictly. Napoleon was the middle child that demanded to be seen, for those of us who have middle children or were middle children, we know all about that. (laughs) So there is an older brother that is one year older than Napoleon. His name is Joseph. Um, They were really, really close. Joseph is kind of, as we see, as we tell these stories of these families as they rule and etc., Joseph is kind of a born diplomat, which a lot of oldest children are. He tends to be the one that wants to t- he he can kind of even out Napoleon's gusto so to speak. He he evens it out. He gives an even keel to things. He's very much an introvert and I don't think wanted any of the notoriety that his brother gave them as a family. But he's kind of a quiet leader. He lets Napoleon be in charge, but he's also in his ear like, "Hey, maybe we don't invade Russia." <laughs> Whether or not Napoleon listens to him um, is is to be seen, but he was calmer, more gentle than Napoleon, and Napoleon was always ready for a fight. I mean, go figure, right? Uh, now, Joseph began his career as a merchant, uh, and <laughs> I think he would have been happy with his wife, Julie, being a merchant in Marseille forever. I don't think that... Um, Napoleon, I think he just kind of went along for the ride with Napoleon, but he was an introvert, his wife was an introvert, and um, he, yeah, I think they, I think he just went along for the ride, and I don't think he was really all that into the whole thing, but he he went along with it. He was later crowned the king of Naples and then the king of Spain, so that was in the time uh after 1804 where Napoleon was just like you get a kingdom and you get a kingdom and you get a kingdom how about Naples how about Spain (laughs) I just imagine a guy who like wants no part of this like oh two kingdoms fantastic (laughs) and uh after the first empire fell he went into exile in the United States and he bought a huge property and he literally became a landscape architect (laughs) know why that is so funny to me, but imagine being like Napoleon's right-hand man. You never ever wanted the job, but because of your duty to your family, there you are. And once your brother gets arrested and sent to an island off the coast of Africa, you're like, sure, I'll just, you know, plant flowers for the rest of my life. Yeah, one time I was the king of Spain, but you know, let's I think a tree would be great here. It's just so, I think the bonapartes are so fascinating to me because it mirrors a lot of my family and I wrote a TV show called Trash with Money that is now a serial on Amazon and, you know, that's just the shameless plug I worked in there. And I see a lot of this, like, sibling stuff and it cracks me up because my show is about a big, huge Italian family and I look at this big, huge Italian family and I'm like, oh yeah, so they're all the same. (laughs) So, after Joseph, we have Napoleon, who is a, <laughs> a Leo, born on August 15th, 1769, in Ajaccio, Corsica. Um, he. Napoleon? Okay, first of all, he's a Leo. I've already said that. If you're into astrology, we all know how Leo men are. Um, at the age of 10, he uh, went to mili- the military academy with his brother Joseph in Paris. Now, I this he has something to prove. Like you'll see in history, and even in my book, he's got a chip on his shoulder because of the racism and classism he experienced at the military academy. But the thing is, is that he was an officer school. Like from he went to the West Point of, you know, like he wasn't he wasn't a conscript. He wasn't an enlisted soldier. He went to military school. He, he was groomed to be an officer from day one. It's not like in the next episode when we talk about Bernadotte, who was an enlisted infantryman who worked him, himself through the ranks and everything. Napoleon went to the rich kid's school <laughs> and was basically groomed for officer training. He never had to do, you know, like what we would view today as like basic training. He just went to school. But because of the Aristo boys that were there, Um, looking down on him for being coarse skin, his accent, his complexion, he had dark olive skin, he gets a chip on his shoulder and it kind of starts this whole, I have this motor in him where he always has something to prove and, um, and he always wants to be legitimized. He's very insecure about it and it motivates his entire life and career. Um, and I think it's also why he picked the wives he picked, um, and how he treated them. Insecurity is a big deal with Napoleon. And obviously he's overcompensating for a lot. I mean there was a whole syndrome named after him. <laughs> um he was a little too ambitious too soon. Um he really wanted to make a difference in Corsica. He wanted to basically become the king of Corsica when he was like twenty two years old. He would go back and forth between France and Corsica and he would, uh, you'd be a rabble rouser there. And he tried to like take over the government. And this guy was like staging coups at 22. (laughs) He was like, yeah, I'm going to rule Corsica. But as we know, historically speaking, your first coup always fails and your second coup is successful. And Napoleon goes ahead and proves that right. Um, His military uh, exploits were outstanding Especially in Italy. So when he gets the boot from Corsica, he goes ahead and just like wins wars in Italy, and it kind of keeps France moving um, during the Revolution. He was very close with Robespierre. He was Republican. He like he. It's very hard to tell pre-first consul of Napoleon because he he's a bit of a shyster. I hate to use that word, but he kind of is. He's he's a politician, but he's also a bold-faced liar. And it's hard to tell if he was really into the Republican side of things with Robespierre or if he was just kind of greasing everybody's palms to, to you know, not be... To, to kind of be neutral and everything. It's hard to tell. There's not much written about it. Um, you can kind of tell by his interactions with general lafayette when general La- he uh, achieves general La- general lafayette's uh freedom from the austrians he the way he and lafayette interact with each other kind of indicates to me that he was a, that napoleon was a pretend republican um and just kind of went with public sentiment to his advantage which smart um but disingenuous Um, And his friendship with Robespierre ended after Napoleon himself was jailed in Marseille. He got picked up. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This is where we get the Clary family uh, entering into the um, orbit of the Bonapartes. And next episode, we'll talk in depth about the Clary family because they are split between the House of Bonaparte and the House of Bernadotte. Julie... Clary, the eldest Clary sister, ends up marrying Joseph. And she's so much like Joseph. She's very, very introverted. She's quiet. She's everybody's bon ami. She is kind. She's basically perfect. And then you have Desiree, who is a handful. (laughs) And we'll explore Desiree's edit in the next episode because there's a lot of things to unpack about Desiree. As there is with Josephine, like, were these edits given to these women out of misogyny? Or, you know, you, you kind of have to unpack all of that, which we will in the next episode. But the Clary that gets into the Bonaparte atmosphere is Julie. And everybody loves Julie. I mean, what's not to like about Julie? She minds her business. she ki- She's kind. And um, <laughs> Napoleon makes the big mistake of proposing to Desiree and breaks that engagement. That's for next episode, but that's kind of an overstep on his part. Um, and well, (laughs) what you gonna do with a guy like Napoleon? So next we have Louis. Louis is a psychopath. Um, you kind of, you're kind of glad that napoleon became the guy in power and not louis um louis the worst louis like every time i read about louis louis legitimately scares me like i get shivers up my spine and i have to sleep with the light on louis scares me like you could just tell like he was the kid that like took the wings off of flies he's just he's just sour um when louis was a child he joined napoleon in paris um, and Napoleon basically raises Louis, um, gives, he pays for his education, he gives him a start in life, um, and he is, he idolizes Napoleon early in his life and accompanies him to all of his campaigns in Italy and Egypt, and, um, down the line, Louis <laughs> is rewarded. And this is where it is just, and we're going to do a whole episode On the bartered bride. Um, Louis is rewarded with a marriage to Josephine's daughter Hortense as well as the kingdom of Holland. So he and Hortense become the king and queen of Holland. (sighs) That marriage. (laughs) Um, And you know when you think about it Louis and Hortense were like 26 and 28 when this happened. Um, and yeah, it's, (laughs) Louis, to his credit, was incredibly smart. Um, and he, he reminds me, okay, this is where you Royal Goss people are going to get me. He reminds me a lot of Prince Charles, today's Prince Charles, um, because he really wants to, he's an intellectual. He really wants to modernize the monarchy and the country. He learns Dutch a lot of the systems and modern things that he carried out in Holland still exist today. Um, but I, he's <laughs> just like Prince Charles. There's a darkness to this guy. And you're just like, and when you, we talk about his marriage to our taunts and everything, we're just, y'all, y'all are going to be like, yikes. Okay, Louie, <laughs> you crazy. <Christ. laughs> so, um, he was overly emotional, he was a bit of an abusive dick, um, and his emo- his relationship with Hortense was incredibly volatile. He was just a cranky, loose cannon who resented being the family puppet. And you'll see, um, as things start to break down in the First Empire, Napoleon starts losing control over his siblings, and Louis was one of those he was completely losing control of. Louis wanted to govern his country his way. And... Napoleon was like, oh, well, I gave you that country and basically you're just a cadet arm of me and you're going to do what I say. So a lot of clashing happened with Napoleon and Louis. Oh, I hate talking. Like, I get chills talking about Louis. <laughs> the other thing was that Louis was expected to give his sons to Napoleon. Now, Napoleon did not have an heir to his throne until he married Maria of Austria, and had the King of Rome, but Louis's three sons were considered the heirs to the throne, and eventually Napoleon III, his son, ascended the throne in the Second Empire. So we have Louis to thank for all of that. <laughs> oh man! So that's where we have the first inter, the second intersection of the Bourneys and the Bonapartes is with Louis and Hortense. Um, so then next we have Elisa. Elisa is, or Eliza, I say Elisa. Uh, that's what her um, her name was Frankified into. And Elisa left her family in Corsica at the age of seven. Um, so Carlo Bonaparte worked tirelessly to give his kids the world. He wanted them educated as high aristocrats. And he worked himself to death to do this. So all of the kids had a top tier education. Elisa went to um, a boarding school near Paris. And Elisa, at, and when she became of age and Napoleon was in power, named her the Grand Duchess of Tuscany. She was a, the most like Letizia of all of the kids. She was very headstrong. And she was one of the few women who commanded Napoleon's respect. And this duchy she was given was um, completely ruled by her. She is the only sibling to get a kingdom in her own right. And she did it the way she wanted. Um, She was, you know, they called her like Girl Napoleon. (laughs) La Grande Napoleon, like that's what they called her, because she was basically Letizia uh, and said, this is my duchy, and this is what I'm going to do with it. Um, She has a huge um, passion for art. A lot of the art that is curated in that area in Tuscany still, it was done by Elisa. A lot of the architecture of the time done by Elisa. Um, She was uh, very ill. And this is a kind of fun trivia fact about her. She alleviated her pain um, through swimming in the ocean, <laughs> which was highly unusual for the time. And she swore all of the Bonaparts were incredibly physically fit, believed in fitness, and she swore by her swimming in the ocean keeping her healthy. So I think um, I, th- I think that's that's cool. I, I don't know. Um, she was the only person that could talk back to Napoleon. You know, a lot of people think that Joseph was always in his ear, but Joseph was kind of like uh, the good cop. Elisa was the bad cop. Elisa was like, screw you, I'm doing it my way. And he acquiesced most of the time. Now there was no reason at the, after the fall of the first empire to take away the duchy of Tuscany from Elisa. Um, She was the only sibling with real political power and she didn't really have a dog in the English fight, so to speak. Tuscany was not a big player in anything and she was doing a very good job ruling it. England and Austria took it away from her just to make a point. And And they also didn't want the risk of leaving any Bonapartes in power. Um, which, you know, that's strategically a good tactic. But at the same time, it's kind of like, well, why did Elisa get screwed? She was the only one that could actually, you know, and I don't think Elisa would ever, um, like we'll see with the other siblings, I don't think Elisa would ever want Napoleon back on the throne. I think that she was happy he was deposed. (laughs) Oh, family. (laughs) There's so much fun. So after Elisa, we have Lucian. Lucian is kind of the Greek chorus of the Bonaparte family. And we all either know of this sibling, have this sibling, have been interacting with somebody that is the Greek chorus of their crazy, dysfunctional family. He kind of just observes and makes comments here and there. He's like, yep, they're insane. They're weirdos, but they're my weirdos. (laughs) Like... Um, he's loyal, he's good at his job, but he would really rather be anywhere else. Um, it's giving a little bit of Joseph vibes. Um, but he's a younger brother, so he gets away with a lot more. Um, he knows he's in a circus, he just kind of goes with it. Like Joseph, he's just like, whatever. (laughs) I'm just gonna do my time. Um, he ends up being the kind one where Josephine is concerned. When everything starts to turn south for Josephine, Lucien is kind of the one that is, like, honest but kind. The Bonapartes treat Josephine like garbage, which we'll get into when we talk about the marriage of Josephine and Napoleon. And Lucien is kind of like, yeah, they're assholes, but they're my assholes, and you gotta work with them. And he he genuinely tried to help Josephine, and he also tries to help Hortense, as well when she starts to have problems with her marriage to his brother Louis. Uh, Lucian was really solid character wise. He was a good dude. He, uh, he actually helped the, with the coup of 1799, and that's important because it shows that Lucian is a great politician, even though he doesn't want to be. Um, he later becomes minister of the interior, Um, but, you know, he kind of has enough of it around 18, like right right after the coronation, Lucian dips. He's like, screw you guys. You're a bunch of yahoos. I've made my money. I've proven myself to this family. I hate the way you're treating Josephine. You basically sold Hortense to our brother. Um, no, I'm out. And he goes and lives in Italy. Uh, (laughs) just like Joseph. Uh, he spends the rest of his life writing novels and poetry <laughs> this family. One goes off to, like, garden for the rest of his life and the other just wants to write poems. It's like, what did Napoleon do to you guys, oh my god. Um, no, but he did end up patching things up with Napoleon in 1815, but they were never in the same room again. So, there you go. That's the black sheep of the family right there, Mr. Lucian. Pauline, Ugh. again, I get a rash when I talk about Pauline, or Paola, as her Italian name is. She is a lunatic, just like Louie. Um, and she's bonkers. She's straight up Cracker Jacks. And <laughs> she's just, I read a book about Pauline not too long ago, and she was straight up Cracker Jacks, and I was just like, oh my god, who is this woman? Why isn't there like a mini-series about her? Like, that's the Netflix, uh, you know, series I want to watch is about Pauline Bonaparte and how insane she is. (laughs) Um, She was a great beauty. She inspired numerous artists to paint and sculpt her. There is a rumor that she is Madame Pasteur in that famous painting. She became an Italian princess in her own right by uh, marrying the son of a distinguished Roman family, the Um So this is where she kind of has a, a different power place than Elisa. Elisa was given her duchy by Napoleon, but Pauline, crazy like a fox, Pauline is like, I'm going to marry royalty on my own right. That way you can't go. I'm ungovernable. <laughs> Which I... Uh, I admire about her but she terrifies me um she traveled a great deal and lived all over the world she lived in these huge homes open floor plan before open floor plan was a thing she really thought she was cleopatra and she modeled her residences out of various uh Talebic palaces of those times uh she lived in paris she lived in Turin. she lived in florence and she was the only sister, or the only one really, to visit Napoleon on his first exile in Elba in 1815. Um, after the fall of the First Empire, she went to Italy. Now, with her obsession with with Cleopatra, there's this, um, Ooh, <laughs> I don't know what to say. There's this... Myth. I don't want to say, it's not canon, right? Like, it's it's written down, but you, again, when you get into the, the bonapartes, especially the women, you're like, well, what is true and what is propaganda? Um, she was very liberated. She um, was very much sexually free. She was sex positive. And a lot of her nutty behavior is actually attributed to end-stage syphilis um, because she also married a hoe. And <laughs> <they> <laughs> hoe's gonna hoe, right? Um, but the Cleopatra rumors—she really genuinely thought, after Napoleon's escape, she helped raise an army for him. You know, like she helped that a whole facility. She really thought that he would install—he would install her as queen, and they would rule together. She had a very weird Cleopatra fantasy when it came to her brother Napoleon, and that—that that caused a lot of. Um, Rumors of incest, improper, you know, dealings with her brother. It didn't help those things. But then again, you have to be like, all right, was she a strong woman who was a little goofy, sex positive, you know, kind of a feminist, and they just wrote her the set it to keep it, you know, keep the men in charge? Or was she really this insane? <laughs> eh. The other thing with Pauline is that she hated both Empresses. She absolutely loathed Josephine and she absolutely loathed Maria of Austria. So there's that. Pauline's a gem. Caroline! 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 (laughs) Caroline's boring. She's the youngest sister and she was also very self-willed. She had strong character, a lot like Louis. she she went rogue and married Murat, who was uh, a general. And she was originally told, "Nah, you're not marrying him," <laughs> but she convinced him to uh, accept the marriage. Uh, she was given a kingdom uh, with Joaquin, the kingdom of Naples, and um, pretty indescript. I mean, she. She, she, like her sister, was really into art and archeological excavations. And she visited Pompeii and and did a lot of work down there. Um, A lot of the, again, a lot of the curated art and architecture in Italy to the north is done by Elisa and to the south was done by Caroline. Um, She had a, she was educated at the same boarding school as Hortense Birnay. And she had an intense rivalry with Hortense, um, which is weird. They didn't really have anything to compete over, but they had an intense, intense rivalry with one another. Um, and that's really all there is to talk about with Caroline. She's just kind of there. Um, when the First Empire fell in 1815, she went back to Austria. She went to Austria for some reason, which is strange Um that also brings up, kind of like this, was Caroline a double agent thing? Some people believe she was a double agent. Some people believe she's just stupid. I don't know. <laughs> Some people believe that she was the um, she was the official mistress of the emperor of Austria, which is weird because her sister-in-law was a grand, just, grand duchess of Austria and returned to Austria after the fall of the first empire with the king of Rome and never dealt with with Napoleon again. So it's it's strange that Car- for as close as his family is that that Caroline would go to Austria. So, but she eventually left Austria and returned to Italy uh, after that. Then finally, we have Jerome. Jerome is the baby of the family. Jerome is chaos. <laughs> Every time I have a baby brother who's 11 years younger than me and every time i read about jerome i just think of my baby brother because this is baby brother vibes so napoleon decided that jerome was a sailor he just looked at him one day and was like yeah you're gonna go on a boat (laughs) and put him on a ship and jerome traveled and he was able to go to the united states himself and nobody really cared about jerome (laughs) he was kind of the forgotten kid you know how, like, in big families, you accidentally leave the, kid, the youngest at the gas station once or twice? Yeah, that was Jerome. They just left him on a boat, and he just um, sailed the seven seas. Um, uh, he kind of got tired of being in the Navy, and he was put in the army, and he didn't do anything. He was just kind of an officer of a small um, region in Germany, and he gets the Kingdom of Westphalia. I know. You're like, where? (laughs) Google it. It's basically like a suburb. I'm from uh, a suburb called Schaumburg. And every time I think of Westphalia, I'm like, oh, he was the king of Schaumburg. And it's just like this little city outside of Chicago that's like maybe got 75,000 people. And I just think of Jerome Bonaparte being the king of Schaumburg. Jerome was so lazy. He didn't do anything. And so Napoleon's like, here, Westphalia. I, I don't even know where that is, but you're going there. <laughs> um, but we have a problem with Jerome because Jerome, oh my God, Jerome goes to Baltimore, Maryland, and he meets a girl named Betsy. Oh. <sighs> Betsy was known for her risque taste in fashion Um, and she was a socialite in uh, Baltimore. She was the daughter of a very, very rich man and Jerome recklessly marries her. Napoleon goes bonkers, like bonkers. Uh, at this, at the uh, this not this is not like you know Caroline marrying a general. This is like this is bad foreign policy. This is a Bonaparte going rogue and marrying a a rich American girl, who gossips to the point of almost causing a war. Betsy Bonaparte, we are going to have to do a whole episode on Betsy Bonaparte, I think, because there are many books. The it's so fascinating to me because she was such a a gossip, and she talked so much. There is more written about Betsy Bonaparte than any other. Uh, Same thing with Betsy, what's-her-face, the little girl on uh, St. Helena with Napoleon. There is more written about the Betsys than the actual women of this kingdom. So. (laughs) Oh, my God. So. (laughs) Jerome's like, I'm going to bring my pregnant wife home for you to meet her. And Napoleon's like, the fuck you are. And he forbid Betsy from, pregnant Betsy, mind you, from setting foot on continental Europe. So she was basically trapped on a boat until um she was about to give birth. Uh, like, he, they were trying to get back uh, in time for Napoleon's coronation. And he's like, uh, no, you're not. And so they were, basically maroon um so they end up in lunch so she ends up in london because she can't set foot in continental europe (laughs) so funny to me like how crazy do you have to be to want to arrest a pregnant woman (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> she sets foot on continental European soil? Like, who does that? Um, and he doesn't, you know, punish Jerome, who, you know, who made the baby, you know, he, Jerome's not in trouble, the lady is in trouble, it's like, oh, Napoleon, the misogyny is showing again. So <sighs> Jerome is ordered back to France, he goes, and he sends her this note, like, and it says, my dearest Elsa, I will do everything that must be done. But she never sees him again. Um, They have a brief encounter in 1822, but he never sees his wife or his child again. And Napoleon has this marriage annulled in 1806. And um, the Pope won't annul this marriage. The Pope is like, uh, bro, it was was a Catholic ceremony in America. They consummated the marriage. They did not want to be with each other. He's like, just because you're emperor (laughs) doesn't mean you can just get to, you know, arbitrarily decide who your brothers marry. But Napoleon was like, screw you, I'm Napoleon. And he has it legally dissolved through the um, parliament of France and tells the, the Pope once again to go kick rocks. So Betsy goes back to Baltimore. They name the son, she calls the son Beau. And Betsy is selling her story to anyone who will listen like she um she was like that's what I'm saying like every there's more written about Betsy Bonaparte than anyone because she very smartly I mean she's a single mom this man ruined her life she goes back and she lives with her father and she you know is still a part of high society and she sells her story and she runs in circles and she's you know And it drove Napoleon insane because he couldn't control her and I think it's beautiful after Waterloo she goes to England (laughs) and she is um, taken she's she now is in all of the European Aristo circles because she's charming she's beautiful she's witty and she freaking hates Napoleon goodness gracious so um, Jerome has a new wife and um, you know (laughs) he marries a a German princess uh, Katerina of Württemberg, um, in 1807 and um, that's that they he gets the kingdom of Westphalia and when the Empire falls he returns to Um, he goes to Switzerland and then again he goes to Austria too Uh, and then he ends up in Italy and in 1847 he was allowed to return to France um, probably because his nephew was about to be in charge so there's that so that is the wild ride of the Bonapartes they are a trip so thank you for listening. In our next episode, we'll, we will wrap up the introduction to all three houses of the Imperial Bees with the stable... We're going to get some stability in our lives because the Bernadots are so boring and so stable. It is a palate cleanse after the um, the drama of the Bonapartes and the Pyrnades. <laughs> we get boring people next. Well, I don't know if you could call Desiree boring, but she's a character in her own right. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to rate and review this podcast, and I will see you soon. Bye.